All right, we're going to jump in. I'm recording this time, so hopefully not going to have to re-record this thing for once. Um, we're going to jump in tonight to actually two topics. We're going to break into uh, the topic of genre, uh, and then we're going to jump into one of those specific genres. That's actually we'll be focusing on different genres of scripture for the rest of our series. Uh, so, so you'll get to hear all about that for the next four or five weeks before we get started. Um, when my son, so I got a girl, Ella, then Hudson is 12, and then I got another girl, Hadley. When my son Hudson was five, six years old, he decided that he wanted to play t-ball. He had heard that some of his friends were playing t-ball, and so he really wanted to play t-ball. And uh, so he comes and he tells us that and problem is it's like last minute the deadline is like we looked it up deadline i can't remember it was either like approaching or it may be even passed at this point to play or to sign up and so we thought about it we talked about it like you know we can go and we can try to see but we wanted to double check because sometimes kids get excited about something but then they don't want to follow through and you're dragging them all over the place and so we're like for real you sure you want to do this you want to play t-ball and he's like yes i want to play t-ball so we're like okay so we go in uh the the next day and sign up even though it's like last minute it may even been like a week past all i know is it was late enough into the thing that uh, there was only going to be one practice before his game for his first game and we were going to be gone during that that one practice which means he was going to have no practices he was just going to show up to t-ball do a game and play and so we got him signed up but now like i feel this responsibility to make sure that like he has some idea of what he's doing so he doesn't embarrass himself when he gets out there to play, play t-ball and more importantly doesn't embarrass me when he gets out there to play t-ball you know and so uh so we go we grab a ball we, we buy a couple gloves and we go out into the backyard and I'm starting to like show him how to throw and how to catch a ball. And we're not at this for like three or four minutes before he's like, Dad, I don't want to do this. And I was like, dude, you said you wanted to do this. You said we asked you and you said you're sure we already paid the money. Like we're doing this, right? This is what you wanted to do. And he said, Dad, I, when do I get my racket? And I was like, you're what? He's like, when did I get my racket to hit the ball with? I was like, oh, man, he thought he was signing up for tennis when he did this. And so now I'm like, dude, we got our work cut out for us. I got like, he's got no practices. He didn't even know what sport he just signed up for. And so I got to like, I got to like my work cut out. him. So we start working. I'm like, I'm going to make sure at least that he knows the basics, that he can get out there. He can throw somewhat catch a ball and that he knows how to hit. So we go hard for like every, every evening I take him out in the backyard and we're practicing these things. I'm talking about keeping the eye on the ball. I'm talking about watching it all the way into your glove. And I'm talking about, you know, stepping forward to throw. And we're going over this and over this and over this. Finally, the, the day comes for his first game. And so we drive over to the fields and we get there a little bit early, which is kind of nice. I'm like, okay, we're going to get to like watch a little bit of T-ball and, and kind of see what's going on there. So I take him over and we're watching the game in front of us. And this kid gets a hit and takes off over to first base. And Hudson turns to me. He's like, what's he doing? And I'm like, he's, well, he hit the ball. So he's running to first base. And Hudson says, what's first base? And I was like, oh, my gosh, we didn't, I, like, you don't even know what first base is. And so it dawns on me that I had worked so hard on, like, teaching him the basics, how to throw, how to catch, how to hit, that I didn't explain any of the rules of t-ball to, to Hudson. And, like, baseball's not, like, a super simple, like, idea with all the, all the ideas. So I'm sitting there. I've got, like, five minutes to his game. I'm trying to teach 
the game of baseball to my six-year-old son in five minutes, right? You hit it and then you run over there. But if someone catches it, then you can't run in there. Unless it hits the ground and then they catch it, then you can still run over there. But if they catch it, you can't go over there. Then you're out. He's like, out of the game? No, not out of the game. You're just going over and sitting. And I'm trying to explain this whole thing before we get there, realizing, man, I made, I wanted him to not be embarrassed by these, like just knowing like the basic stuff. And I totally forgot the importance of the rules. And, and the, the reason that this like was such a huge deal is because I wanted him to be able to play. I wanted him to be able to do this thing. I wanted him to go out there and, and have fun, but I forgot some of the significant parts like that. There are specific ways you play the game. So tonight, as we jump into genre, uh, this is really like the paradigm for you to keep in mind. What we've been teaching you so far are we've been teaching you like fundamentals. We've been teaching you hand-eye coordination. We've been teaching you like drills to do. When we talk about observation, we talk about literary context, when we talk about historical context, these are all like things that are gonna apply to every book that you pick up and read out of the Bible, okay? Whoops. Um, but, um, but what we're going to discover actually is that each, uh, each type of book, each type of literature, what we call genre, actually has its own rules to it. And so if you don't know, like you might know how to throw uh, a ball and that might help you in a couple different sports, but if you don't know the rules to the specific sport you're playing, you're gonna be working at a disadvantage. And so every genre has its own rules for how to interpret the scriptures in them. So uh, a verse, if you've been coming to Sunnybrook, we've been going through wisdom literature. Um, a verse that's kind of come up a couple times and I'll read it to you is Proverbs 22, six. Uh, Proverbs 22, six says this, start a youth out on his way. Even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. Uh, and this is uh, the more common way this is said is train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's kind of the idea. And there are a lot of parents who have kind of clung to that verse um, when they're, when they've raised their kids up in the church and then their kids have gone kind of wayward. And they've held to that kind of promise. I know, I know my child's kind of straying away, but the Bible says, train up a child in the way that he will go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. So I know he's coming back, right? But the truth is that doesn't always happen. Uh, sometimes you train up a child in the way that they will go and they just depart from it. And they just, because of their own choice and their own free will. And so what's going on there? Well, what's the problem? Why did that actually take place in that moment? Is this not true? No, it's, it's totally true. But what's being happened is this is being read according to genre rules that don't apply to it. Proverbs is what's called wisdom literature. And Proverbs, uh, wisdom literature presents to us general statements of truth that are generally true in life that we wanna to try to line ourselves up with. It is generally true that if you raise up a kid in the right path, more often than not, they're going to go the right direction. They've got a much better chance than a kid that's not raised in that. But Proverbs are not written as promises. Uh, this is 100% going to happen. And when the writer wrote that, and when the original readers read this, they knew that. They knew that this wasn't like a promise because that's not how wisdom literature worked. They're playing according to the rules when they read these. And that's what we want to do whenever we read the scriptures. Let me just say something real quick, and I'll probably say this a couple times tonight. When I say, if you don't know the rules to the genre, you're working at a disadvantage, I am not saying that if you don't know how all the genres work, you may as well not read this, you're not gonna get anything out of it. That's not what I'm saying. One of my fears when we teach 
a course on how to study the Bible is that when we explain all these different things that can be done to discover truth in the scripture, that it just becomes intimidating and that you find yourself going, I can never do all that stuff. So I'm just like wasting my time. I'm just going to, I'm just going to come up with like bad interpretations of this and I'm going to get it wrong all the time. So what's the point? That's, that's not what we want to do. Uh, you can still pick this Bible up for five or 10 minutes in the morning without going through all the different steps that we do all the time and still gain truth from it and still be fed by this. Um, so I don't want to discourage you from that kind of reading and for picking it up. What, what this does though, if you will learn to kind of follow some of these rules of interpretation that we talk about, what this does though is it allows you to go deeper. Uh, the Bible is like a, a field that is just filled with treasure, but the truth is the treasure is not just sitting on top. The treasure goes five feet deep under the surface, and then there's actually more, 15 feet, and then if you go 20 feet, you'll find more and more. There's just more and more to find. And so you can just walk and scan over and still come away with some stuff, but the more you dig, the more you're going to find. And what you'll find is as you begin to study, like for me, I don't, I don't, uh, when I get up and do my morning Bible reading, I don't go through all the steps that we're covering in this series. I don't, I don't pull out my Bible background commentaries. I don't pull out all my word study information. I don't do all, you know, all those things. But years and years of following the process that we've done gives you some of those tools just start to kind of take place as you read the scriptures. And you'll find that happening more and more as you begin to try and practice these things. You'll find that it will just happen a little bit more by habit as you build up kind of reservoir of knowledge. Okay, so that's a little bit of a side talk. We'll get back to John. I just wanted to clarify that. And like I said, I'll probably say it again because I just don't want you, if you walk away going, man, now I'm, now I'm scared to read this thing because I'm gonna get it wrong and I'm gonna tattoo a verse on myself and it's not gonna mean what I thought it meant and I'm gonna feel stupid. Um, that's not, then we've, we've messed up. That's not our goal. Our goal is to get you reading this more and loving it more. So let's jump in and talk about this for a second. Definition, what do we we mean by genre. A genre is a class or category of literature having a particular style, form, and content. Particular style, form, or content. Here's a here's kind of a, an idea for you that's worth holding on to. All the Bible tells the truth, but not every part tells the truth in the same way. So everything in here is true. Everything in here is scripture, but the authors use different means to convey that truth. They come at it from different ways. They use different styles. So they don't all tell it in the same way. Um, So this is kind of really important. So here's a quote from Grant Osborne. He says this, genre is more than a means of clarifying literary types. It is a tool for unlocking meaning in individual texts. It's a tool for unlocking meaning in individual texts. What does he mean by that? What is, he, what is he saying by that? This is what he means. He means, number one, that the biblical authors knew of different genres. They knew when they sat down to write, I've got, I've got several different ways that I could go about this. So they didn't all just sit down, just kind of randomly write, and we'll see what happens. They knew. I could use poetry to convey this idea. I could use historical narrative. I could use gospel. I could use all these different ways. And they knew that there were different types um, that were a part of their culture. Okay, number two. The biblical authors intentionally selected a particular genre to accomplish their specific purpose for uh, for writing. Okay, so that purpose might be conveying information, uh, which is largely what's happening, like in the epistles 
or there's a different kind of conveying information in the historical uh, narratives, that kind of stuff. Um, it may be giving instruction, uh, which is more like, like the wisdom literature, those kinds of things. And there's obviously giving instruction in epistles and stuff. Um, it may be evoking emotion, like the Psalms. The Psalms are saying true things, but they are, they are more concerned with getting your heart to open up to, uh, to feel certain things about God. Uh, to, to, to see him in awe and in worship more than just to recognize facts about him. And so the psalmist goes, I could just tell you things, but I want to I write in a way that's going to kind of open up your hearts to him, open up your feelings to him a little bit. And here's the third thing. The biblical authors expected the readers to interpret their writings in accordance with the genre selected. Just like if I'm going to go out and play b baseball, I cannot expect to uh, dribble the ball down the field as I'm trying to make my way. I can't expect to tackle someone out there and get away with that. Uh, there are specific rules that I'm supposed to play by when I play that. Same in, same in reading different genres of the Bible. And, and we recognize this. You don't, if, if your roommate hands you a grocery list and says, here's what we need, okay? You read that different than if your girlfriend or your boyfriend gives you a note, right? Gives you a letter, right? You're going to, you're going to read those things different. You don't even have to think about it. But you know that, like, if I'm reading a grocery list, I'm not looking at, like, I'm not looking at literary context, right? I'm not going, oh, bananas. I wonder how that's connected to the idea of milk, which is right up above that, and how that flows into the idea of getting, like, bread. You know what I mean? Like, no, that's, we, we don't have to, like, follow different rules. We know what's going on when we read those things. Uh, so uh, newspapers operate different than novels, which operate different than textbooks, which operate different than the text that you put in like Instagram, like when you post something, like everything plays by its own rules and there are certain things in there. Like for example, like honestly, even just uh, emojis, right? If emojis mo made their way into like a, a news article, you might just suspect that person of not being like the greatest uh, researcher or something like that as they kind of put those things in there. There are different rules and we just recognize it when we see that. We recognize when we see uh, the poem, uh, roses are red, violets are blue, uh, sugar is sweet, and what? So are you, okay? We recognize, I, I think we recognize, that does not mean that we think like that that person literally is like sweet, right? Like if you like cut their hair and put it in your mouth, it would taste like really good or whatever. That just makes you crazy, right? Um, like we, we know that. Nobody has to tell you. By the way, I don't mean literally. No, we know we're reading a poem. And so we, we play by the poem's rules where metaphor is speaking to us and telling us different truths, okay? Um, let me give you a list of some of the different biblical genres that you will encounter with like a brief summary of them. Historical narrative is first, which is simply a story describing the history of God's people. Uh, examples you have on there, Genesis, Exodus, the Gospels fit in this, even though they're their own category we'll talk about. First and second Kings, Joshua, Judges, Acts. Uh, like First and Second Chronicles would be in that. So there, there are other parts of the prophets have historical narrative in them. Gospel is a theological biography of Jesus. I say theological because uh, a biography's job is to tell you everything about a person. Uh, gospel's job is not to tell you everything that Jesus ever did. Most of our gospels skip all the way like 
Luke, we, we get little bits of information in Matthew and Luke about his birth. Luke tells us one tiny story of when he's 12, and then everything else skips to when he's around 30-ish and just tells us that. Why? Because the point is not to tell you everything about Jesus' life. The point is to convey specific truths about Jesus, theological truths about Jesus. And that's why the gospel writers chose what they would include and what they would not include in those. Um, poetry. Writings using emotive, artistic language to evoke worship. You have Psalms and Song of Solomon. You'll also see this in Job. The prophets sometimes use poetry. Exodus actually has one or two chapters of poetry. Uh, Judges has some poetry in it. Wisdom literature is proverbial teaching about how God's world works and how people ought to live in it. So you have some examples there. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Prophecy is a collection of divine messages given by God's spokesman to his people. Prophecy, I think, is a very um, misunderstood genre of Scripture. And we don't always know the rules. We think prophecy means uh, writings about the future. And that's not what prophecy meant when they, wrote, when they did it back then. And so we, we misinterpret it. By the way, there are more books in your Bible categorized under prophecy than any other, any other genre in, in there. And so our misunderstanding of that genre causes us to play by the wrong rules when we read many of these books. And so it's important to kind of catch that. Prophecy basically is everything from Isaiah to Malachi in your Old Testament. And then you have apocalyptic literature, uh, which is a revelation from an otherworldly being describing the reality of the world from a transcendent perspective. So the idea of apocalyptic literature is to essentially, um, you see everything how it is right here on earth. Let me pull back the curtain. Apocalypse actually means a, a revealing, or it also means, see if this sounds familiar, a revelation. Okay? It means to reveal. And so apocalyptic literature, the idea is, this, I know this is what you see on the earth. Let me pull back the curtain and let me show you what's happening from like the viewpoint of heaven and how things are, what things are really like, even if you can't see it. That's the goal of apocalyptic literature. And the main example of that is Revelation. There is also some apocalyptic literature in the book of Daniel um, that you'll see as you read through that. And then lastly is epistles. There are other, by the way, Subgenres. So, parable is a subgenre that we find in the Gospels um, that will kind of fit in there. And so, their uh, genealogies are kind of their own little genre, uh, their own type of literature. And those, those go in historical narratives and in the Gospels, some things like that. But epistles uh, are uh, letters, and, and that Greek word or epistle comes from the Greek word for letter. Letters written to churches and or individuals to provide instruction and teaching. Examples of epistles are everything in your Bible from Romans to Jude. 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament are letters. You have the four Gospels, you have the book of Acts, okay, and then you've got Revelation at the very end. Those, those are not epistle. Everything else in the New Testament is, okay? And that's what we're going to actually dive into tonight. So from here on out, Every, every week, we're going to be looking at a different genre of literature. I'm going to kind of dive into it in, in depth a little bit. Um, we'll start, we're starting with epistles, partly because epistles are, one, are some that uh, 
they are one that we get. We, we get, in a lot of ways, the, the rules of this genre. It's, it's prose is what it is. It's just writing and, and fairly straightforward. There's not tons of metaphor or poetic language, not tons of rules to, to learn as we go through. Okay, so let's talk about the nature and structure of them real quick. Uh, Scott Duvall and Daniel Hayes, they wrote this textbook called Grasping God's Word, and they call New Testament epistles authoritative substitutes for the apostles themselves, written to teach and deal with specific situations in a church. Epistles are somewhere on the spectrum between an informal letter, like you might write to a friend, or like a treatise, which you, uh, like a treatise which you would like have as kind of like an open letter or, or, or an essay or a paper. There's somewhere between those kinds of things. And even our, our letters in the New Testament kind of fit on a spectrum. Uh, Philemon fits way over here as an informal letter with like a tiny bit of teaching in there. Second and third John fit over here in this informal letter category. And then as you move over, you get over more like Romans, which fits more towards like the treatise kind of um, larger style essay, although it is still a letter. Hebrews is a little bit more like that. Hebrews is almost more a sermon, uh, really, in a, in a lot of ways as you read through it. Um, so here's kind of a common scenario for how things would work. Uh, a church planter like Paul, who writes most of the, the New Testament letters that we have. Paul travels around the Roman Empire, and he plants a church. And when he plants a church, he tries to teach them as much as he can, and then uh, hopefully he can be around long enough to appoint elders, overseers, to kind of lead that church. And then he moves on because he wants to share the gospel in as many places as he can. And as Paul is traveling around, he will often receive word of how things are going at this particular church where he planted. And, and a problem will arise. There will be some sort of controversy in the church amongst the leadership. There will be some sort of fighting. There will be a false teaching that starts to spread. Or he catches wind of a false teaching that is spreading across and may not have gotten there yet, but may soon. And Paul can't get there because he's, he's in the middle of traveling. Sometimes he's in jail. Okay? Sometimes, so there's, there's different reasons that he can't get there. And so as a substitute for his presence to be there, he writes a letter and he sends it back. And that letter is like him standing in front of the people and speaking to them. And as a matter of fact, that's how virtually every one of these letters were heard the first time was by someone actually standing up and speaking them out loud to the church. The church would gather in a room and they would go, here's what Paul has written to us. And it would be read out loud, um, often by the person who took it. Okay, so the person who carried it, there was no postal service. Uh, back then. Actually, there was postal service. It was only for official government uh, like uh, documents and for like military commands and stuff. Common people like you and I, we didn't have, you know, they didn't have letters. So if I wanted to send a letter, I just had to hope somebody I knew was going that way. Or I, or I would send, or I would send a friend or a servant that way. And often like Paul might send this with uh, Tychicus. We see that in both Colossians and Ephesians. He's the guy who brings the letter. And, and he would actually even give notes to him. When you say this, say it like this, okay? This is how I want you to stress this. And Tychicus gets up and says, this is what Paul would say. And he reads it out loud to everybody in there. And that's how they kind of hear it. Almost like Paul standing there giving them a message. Uh, not every one of the letters were written by the person who planted them. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. He's not even, never even been there before. 
but he wants to go there and, and he wants to kind of give them some instruction and lay out some things. And so he sends this letter to Rome before he gets there. Uh, Colossians, he sends a letter to Colossians. It's, 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 uh, he, he did not plant that church and it's not just for them. He says actually in the letter, when you finish this, I wrote a letter to Laodicea, you guys trade. I want you to see the things that I wrote to them too, and I want them to see what I wrote to you. And so there's some of that stuff that's going on in there as well. Letter writing was not a cheap or simple uh, experience. The materials were costly, and as I said, uh, to get a letter to someone required you sending someone or, or trusting it with someone, those kinds of things, which means Paul does not sit down. James does not sit down. John does not sit down and just scribble some thoughts. Okay? When we read New Testament letters, you need to expect thoughtful, intentional literature. That there's a plan and purpose to the way they wrote these things out. Paul will often say in his letters that he wrote it along some, with someone else. Myself and Timothy are writing to you, church in Philippi. Or myself and Silas and Timothy are writing this to you. Sosthenes and myself, they probably sat down and hashed out what they wanted to say and how. And then they, they wrote it through an amanuensis, which is like a secretary. Paul's saying it out loud, and he's writing that out. Okay? And then that gets sent over. Um, here is the basic structure we have of first century documents, uh, first century letters that were sent back then. And most of them fall into this category along with New Testament letters. Number one, they would begin with the name of the writer, which is actually the flip of us, right? I write a letter or an email to you. I wait till the very end and I sign it, yours truly, or love, or whatever, Drew. That goes at the very end, right? Theirs comes at the very beginning. Uh, Drew, writing to the church in Stillwater, writing to Caleb, writing to Carter. Like, I'm just uh, starting that out. So the first one is the name of the writer, and then the name of the recipient, followed by a greeting. The greeting... Uh, literally in Greek was like karain, I think is how you say it. it, means greetings. But in all of Paul's letters, he changes that word karain to charis or charis. Uh, instead of greetings, it's grace. And then he adds the Jewish greetings to it often. So you see grace and shalom, grace and peace to you is how the New Testament writers start uh, most of their letters. Uh, last, uh, sorry, next you'll often see a prayer. So in like pagan letters, it would be something like this. Drew, write into Enoch and a, uh, greetings to you. May the gods look down on you in favor. Or I hope that the gods are would say something like that, right? Most of the New Testament write, uh, letters have something like this too, where Paul will actually write out like his prayer for the church there. Uh, not all of them, but most of them do. Uh, fifth is the body. This is like the main gist of the letter. This is what the message is. This is those main things. And that can take a number of different forms. And then lastly, you close with a final greeting and a farewell. Often you'll see in these ones travel plans. Hey, my hope is to get to you soon. Sometime that'll happen. For now, I'm sending so-and-so. Uh, so those first three categories uh, take place in just the first two or three verses. Uh, the fourth category, prayer, is sometimes not even there. But if you read in the letters, if you read in the epistles, particularly like Paul's epistles, in those first three, four things, the greetings, um, like the saying who he is, the author and the recipient and the prayer, you will actually often find clues about where this letter is going just at the very beginning of it. You'll see just by the way Paul addresses himself and by what he calls them, 
and by his prayers for them, uh, what he's uh, what this letter is going to be about. So in like Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, one of the calls that Paul will make, uh, go ahead and read, go, go ahead and go there for just a second. Paul opens most of his most of his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church at, right? That's how he opens most of it. Look at how he opens Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. One of the things to think through is when a letter deviates from the form, ask this question, why? Why does Paul call himself an apostle in almost every letter he writes, and in this one he chooses not to? And that's worth thinking through. You will see, actually, throughout the letter of Philippians, it's a, it's a letter where they're fighting a lot, the, the church there, a fair amount of them are, and Paul calls them over and over again to humble service. And he starts his very thing out by identifying himself as a servant. Um, he's the one who started that church. They look up to him as the greatest. He calls himself to start off the letter as a servant. That's, he's setting the tone from the very beginning. Galatians is the opposite. Galatians, he doesn't just call himself an apostle. Galatians, they're starting to walk away from his truth, the, the, the truth he gave them when he started it, and they're trying to like distance himself, and they're starting to doubt whether Paul really knows because these false teachers have come in and said other things. And so in Galatians, Paul doubles down and calls himself an apostle, not by the will of any human being, but by the will of God. So listen to me, people, is basically what he's saying. Okay, I have authority as I'm speaking to you um, when he says those things. And Galatians uh, has no prayer in it for the people, right? Philippians, he gushes. I love you so much. I miss you so much. I pray for you all the time. Galatians, he's like, we're getting right down to business, okay? Um, Galatians, people will say, like, you can see in the Philippians, that might be his favorite church the way he talks about them. Galatians is the only ones he calls idiots in his letter, right? So not on his favorite list. Um, and he does not like when, when people, the Corinthians are doing like bad things. Like they are, they are getting into trouble. We talked about a couple years ago. They, there's all kinds of fighting. There's all kinds of discord. And Paul comes after him. He doesn't mind being like strong and direct with them. He comes harder after the Galatians, who are not doing all the simple things, but they are abandoning the truth of the gospel. He gets more frustrated about that. He gets more intense about that uh, than even like some of like the failures within the church sometimes. So it's, it's just kind of interesting to note that. Um, let's see. The body is the primary message of the letter and can take a variety of formats. So in 1 Corinthians, it'll be like question and answer format a lot of times you'll see. Um, in James, it's more like wisdom literature. In Hebrews, it's like a sermon. And then in that last part, the final greeting, you'll see travel plans or sometimes a closing prayer or prayer request, a benediction, all those things. How to read an epistle. Uh, in some ways, epistles are the easiest to understand and apply to our lives today because of their format. It makes sense to us. But the style can cause us to forget sometimes when you read a letter, you are reading someone else's mail. Okay? And so when we pick it up and we read it like it's a textbook, we're, we're going to sometimes miss some things. We're actually reading someone else's mail when we read through the letters. This is something that Paul has written to a particular group of people. Epistles are situational documents, not systematic documents. When they were written, 
John or Paul did not sit down to go, I'm going to explain to you everything that you need to know about the Christian faith and about the Christian life. That's not what he does. Some people ask, why is, why is the, the word Trinity, if you read in the Bible, why is the Trinity never in there? Why is that not explained in the epistles? It's because the writer wasn't going, I'm going to explain to you everything. He's trying to deal with specific issues that are taking place in that church at that time. These are situational documents. You ever listen to like your friend talking on the phone to someone and you're hearing one side of a conversation and trying to figure out what are they actually talking about? Like you can hear some things that they're saying, but you can't quite make all of it out. And you're trying to figure out what the conversation is. I remember being a little kid and hearing my mom talking about how my dad was going to marry someone soon and like freaking out and be like, my dad's marrying someone. And like, who's he marrying? I thought he was married to my mom. And why is my mom not seem more upset when she's saying those things, right? And, and she's talking about how he was doing the wedding for some people. He was going to marry this couple together, right? Marry this couple off. Right. But I'm just hearing one half of the conversation and trying to discern in some ways. That's what's happened when we write when we read an epistle. The Corinthians have been writing letters to Paul and he's writing back to respond to them. And we're only getting one half of the conversation. And so we're, we're sometimes kind of reading between the lines to try and figure out exactly what he's talking about. OK, so here are the three big things for reading an epistle. Number one, learn the historical background. Rachel talked to you about historical background and the importance of understanding that and how to do that a little bit last week. Uh, Tim Mackey, who does the Bible Project, I'll reference them a couple times here tonight. Uh, he says basically there are three levels of historical background for an epistle when you're reading it. The, the first one is the story of Scripture. Okay. So in the Bible, um, you've got... Uh, the Old Testament over here, you've got uh, Jesus appearing on the scene here with the Gospels, okay? And then you've got everything else until you get to Revelation over here, you've got epistles, right? And so what the apostles see themselves as doing is they are, you have all the Old Testament that was preparing us for this moment. Everything was leading up to this. And so everything you read in the Old Testament is to some degree either pointing to Jesus or setting you up for Jesus, setting you up for his arrival. What the apostles are doing is the Gospels come and they tell about Jesus. They tell what happened. And so this is, in a lot of ways, the high point of Scripture. Everything moves up to this, right? Okay. And now what the apostles are doing in their letters is they are... Uh, heralds of they are announcing the good news of Jesus and explaining the good news of Jesus so they're trying to explain this is what actually happened when Jesus came and here are the implications for our lives so they see themselves as writing in this larger story and they'll go back and grab pieces of the Old Testament to help explain they'll go back and they'll kind of grab this to help point to what was actually happening with Jesus on the cross. So they see themselves as writing in the story of Scripture. Um, if, you, if you read Romans 1, 1 through 6, that's Paul's intro to his letter. And he talks about, he kind of lays it out. I'm writing to you about Jesus, who was born as a son of David, the king, uh, the, the great king. But he is also born as the son of God. And so he gets into kind of history and then goes into theology as he begins to explain his thing. Just so, just so you're all aware, every one of these letters was written within roughly 50 years of Jesus' uh, time on earth. 
Okay, so some is early. Some people think Galatians may have been written in like the 40s, 50s possibly, um, which would be which would be 10 to 10 to 20 years after Jesus. Um, but they were actually no 40s definitely because Corinthians was written in like 54, 55, first and second Corinthians. And so some think Galatians were really early. They were all written very closely to Jesus and lining out what he did. Okay, second level of historical background: the Greco-Roman world. Okay, the entire known world, at least to these people at this time, is run by the Roman Empire. And it is all following under a culture that has been handed off by the Greeks when Alexander Alexander the Great conquered and made the whole world Greek and then Rome conquered and is falling under that kind of culture. And so there are certain cultural issues that everyone holds to. Okay, Um, like this, men are better than women. Okay, everybody just kind of understood that. Uh, when I said understood that, I mean like assumed that. It is, uh, it is estimated that the Greco-Roman Empire had twice as many men as it did women. That the population was, was doubled for men. And the reason why is because it was common to, if, if your wife gave birth to a girl, to go take that girl out to the trash heap out on the edge of town and leave it out there to die. Because we don't we don't need girls. Girls aren't going to progress our family. We need, we need men. We need guys. And so many girls died at birth, were left out to die at birth. And so this is a huge thing. So when, go with me real quick to Galatians 1, 26, 29. Um, did I say Galatians 1? It might not be Galatians 1. I think I meant Galatians 3. Okay, Galatians 3, 26 through 29, yes. Um, Actually, yeah, there it is. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. Greek just means Gentile. Slave or free. By the way, one-third of the Roman Empire is slaves. One-third of the population is slaves. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are heirs, right? We read that and we go, oh yeah, those things don't matter so much. And, and, and gender, what does it really matter? Paul's not getting after that. Paul's trying to say, basically, in Jesus, all the class distinctions, poor and rich, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, that are so important in our world, which were very, very important in the Greco-Roman world, all of those get wiped away in Jesus. This is why the same historians who estimate that there were twice as many men as women in the Roman Empire also say that it was probably reversed in the church, twice as many women as men in the church. Because in the church, when you read through the letters in in Christianity, women found a space where they were treated as valuable, where they were treated as uh, the same as, equally valuable in God's eyes as men are. There is no male or female in Jesus' eyes. Both uh, are counted as children of God. That's important. Here's the third level of background, the situation of the specific church. So that each church has specific things going on, and each writer has a specific purpose for why he's writing and writing to a specific place. Uh, if you get a study Bible, 
you can really look into those things and you can tackle those things pretty easily. Uh, you get some kind of study Bible, and before you read through Galatians, there will be a thing that gives you the situation and the purpose and the author and the date of this letter, and you'll be able to know that. You can also, again, I told you reference, Bible Project. If you go to the BibleProject.com or whatever, uh, look up Bible Project on YouTube. Just Google Bible Project Romans, and they will show there's an eight-minute video that will tell you all the background about that letter, why it was written, and what, what Paul is trying to tackle when he writes that. Um, if you're going to read any epistle, go to Bible Project and watch that video before you do it. It will explain so much. Okay, second thing, pay attention to the flow of the argument. This is just context that we talk about all the time. Uh, this is probably, we talked about literary context. This is probably the genre that matters the most, uh, is, is following the context and the flow of the ar argument. Imagine you get in the mail. I don't know if anybody sends letters anymore. Let's just pretend you guys send letters, okay? Imagine you get in the mail a letter from a friend, a five or six page letter from the friend, and you're so excited and you go and you open that up. You haven't heard from this friend in a while. And the first thing you do is flip over to the second page and go down to the third paragraph and read that and go, ooh, that's really good, and then put it down. And then the next day you go to the first page and you read the second paragraph of the first page. And then the next day you decide to pick up the fifth page and read the first paragraph of the fifth page you're not going to grasp real well what your friend is trying to say to you. But that's how we read the letters from the New Testament a lot of times. Um, your friend wrote your letter, and, and there's going to be something that was written on the second page that you're going to need to know before you read that thing on the third page. It's going to help you understand what's going on on that third page when you read those things. And, and this is true of the epistles as well, that when we read those things together, it helps. Here's something again. Uh, that you that is helpful don't feel like I cannot read Romans unless I do this but it is helpful to read through a letter all the way through before you pick up and read the rest because then you get an idea of the flow of the argument again don't go well I can never read Romans 3 until I read all of Romans in one sitting nope not what I'm saying I'm just saying if you want to get a grasp on a book uh, on a letter reading all the way through can be really really helpful uh, when you read epistles Think paragraphs, not verses. Think, what does this paragraph say? Not just, what does this verse say? Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, last, uh, third thing. Compare your context to the recipient's context before applying. Okay. Ooh, what, what did I do with my marker? Okay. We've shown you this, I think. Uh, if not, apologize. Okay. So when the... When the author writes, he's writing a specific thing to, say, the Corinthian church, that he wants the Corinthian church to grasp. And our goal is to figure out, whoops, uh, I'm just going to write us here. Our goal is to figure out what does this have to do with us, okay? How do we obey this truth? Um, and so the temptation is to read this and then just jump right here. And just go, okay, this is what it said, so now how do we live that out? But we get into trouble when we go to like the end of 1 Corinthians and Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, right? Or Peter says, he calls it the kiss of love, okay, even better. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And we just go, all right, that's what Peter says. Let's get to it, people, right? We can't do that, okay? We've got to actually do some extra work and we've got to go, okay, wait, wait, wait. What do we know about their culture? And what do we know about our culture? What things are different between our culture and theirs? 
and what things are the same. And then we can begin to work through. So once we get the understanding of what's happening, then we make the jump up here and we will look for a timeless principle that under, underlays it, okay? And then once we've figured out the timeless principle, then we go down here and we go, okay, so now knowing what we know about that culture and knowing what we know about ours, here's how this truth applies into our lives, right? So let's just talk for a second. Um, what is the same? Paul says to the church in Corinthians, um, greet one another with a holy kiss. What do we have in common with the Corinthians? What are some things that Paul would say is true of both the Corinthians and us? Okay, logic. Okay, we both want to be thinking through things. Okay, what's true of the Corinthian church and our church? Just something basic. What's something basic about all Christians everywhere? Okay, sinners. We believe in Jesus, okay? And in Jesus, he says in Galatians, there is no what? Male or female, slave or free. We're all actually, as Christians, we call each other what? Brothers and sisters, right? Okay, so this is true. Whether you're in Corinth or whether you're in Stillwater in 2023, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all, there is no higher status in here. There is no lower status. There's no male, female. Do you know that's, that's just true. What is different between our culture and the Corinthian culture? Just like basic, kind of very, very obvious. What would be a difference? Language, Language what? The way, the way we dress, okay. Technology, okay. Now, so, now go back to this specific command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What would be different between them and us? That's their culture. It's not our culture. Okay, our culture is not to kiss each other. Yeah. Okay, there we go. There, that's right. Like in that culture, <laughs> in that culture, right? So when I lived, when I lived overseas, like that was actually like for guys. For actually, guys don't do it with girls. I don't think. In, in like Turkey, like men with men, girls with girls would come up and they wouldn't actually like kiss you. They do kind of like touch cheeks, almost like kissing each other on the cheek. And so that's what you do with all your friends. With my Turkish friends, it's twice, once here, once here. With Iranian friends, it's three times here, here, here. Okay. That's just what you do. I don't do that with, you wouldn't in, in Turkey do that with someone you just met. That's for, that's not what you do with an acquaintance. That's for someone who counts as your people. That's for people that are your people, your friends, your family, your close ones. So when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, what he is saying to the Corinthians is, I don't care if you are rich or if you are poor, these people in this church are your people. They are your brothers and your sisters. You don't give anybody in church the cold shoulder. You greet them like they are your people. Now, that's not how we greet one another here, right? How do we greet one another in our culture? Handshakes, hugs. Fist bumps, okay? Like, literally. And so, literally, Paul might say today, as we said, greet one another with a holy fist bump, okay? <laughs> greet one another with a, a, a slap on the back of love or something like that, okay? But, but the idea... <laughs> but the idea is that, the, that we don't... We treat one another like, like, we, like you are my people, okay? Regardless of how well I know you, you are my people because you are a brother and sister in Christ. And that is kind of the connection we make. So, let's real quick, uh, let's practice for just a few minutes, okay? So, go to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Here's a verse you may have heard said before, uh, taught about before. 
Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Other versions say, let a person examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. Okay, Paul is talking about in this passage, what's the context? Communion. Let a person examine themselves before they take communion. And that passage is all often talked about as a way of saying, like, before you take uh, communion, you look back over your week and see how, like, sinful you've been. And make sure you think about that whether you, before you take communion, right? That's kind of how that's often spoken. Let's take just a minute using some of the tools that we've learned over the last several weeks. And let's talk about what this verse means and how we should apply it. Okay? So, um... Can I get someone who will read for me? Uh, let's see, 11, read in 17 uh, real quick. Uh, who wants to read for me? It'll be a little bit of a long one. Okay, Austin, read for me 17 down to, tw- uh, down to 22 real quick. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, and I believe it in part, that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you on this? No, I will not. Okay, so real quick, context, we know we're talking about communion, but what specifically is Paul saying is happening when they get together for communion here? They're forsaking the original meaning of what it's supposed to be. Okay. Okay, the there you go. Okay, there are, he uses the phrase, there are divisions, and they're giving each other, how are they doing that? What did he just say is happening, specifically is kind of happening? How are they uh, abandoning one another and showing disunity and division? Okay, so, so like some of you are like got lots of food to eat. You're coming together for this meal. Some of you got lots of food to eat. Others are going hungry. Uh, either there's one of two things going on. We don't know specifically. Either everyone's bringing their food and the rich people are bringing their food and they're holding it to themselves and eating while the poor people didn't have anything to bring. And so they're not getting to eat. Or the rich are getting there while the poor people are still working out in the fields because they've, they've got jobs. They got to work all day. And they're starting in and having the Lord's Supper without the people there. Okay, so regardless, one group is filling themselves up and one group is not a part of it. Okay, Austin, continue on, read verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so here's, here's where we get to our text. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. And people, I, I, there are people I know in our church who have refused to take communion on Sundays, like have not taken communion for years because they don't want to violate that command. I don't want to take the cup in an unworthy manner. I don't want to take the bread in an unworthy manner. Like, I haven't lived a good enough life this last week. So if I, if I eat, I'll be unworthy of this stuff. But Paul has just explained for us what is the unworthy manner that he's talking about. Okay? 
specifically like the drunkenness because you're drinking a lot and these people over here are drinking none. You're, ignore, you're taking the body of Christ while ignoring the body of Christ. And Paul says, that's wrong. You can't, you can't do that. That's unworthy of the body of Christ. So let a person examine himself in this way and let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, so, um, and we could go on, but let's just talk for just a second. So the, the issue is that the rich people are getting there and they're eating all their food and they're leaving the poor people out to. So how do we apply this to ourselves, this examine yourselves thing? What is... What is the same between us and the Corinthian church when it comes to this specific issue? What things are the same? What? Humans need to eat. Okay, good. What? We sin. Okay. You don't have to go too deep here. Do we also take communion? Yes, we do communion too, just like them. Okay. We do that. When do we do that? When we gather together, just like them, right? Okay. What's different, though? How, how would our situation be different than theirs? We're not eating a full meal necessarily. Okay. We do not come together and eat a full meal when we do this, right? It's impossible. Listen, if you are, specifically in Sunnybrook where we're doing grape juice, if somehow you're getting drunk when other people aren't, it's not communion that you're taking. Okay. You're doing something else over there. You brought something else over in the corner, right? So that's not, that's not the issue for us. We don't have to worry about Oh, Alec is getting drunk and Caleb doesn't have enough. Okay, right? That's, that's not going to be, a, there's a difference there, right? So, so then how does this apply to us? Because we don't have to worry about any of us getting drunk. We don't have to worry about any of us gorging ourselves on the little uh, chiclet, right? Every, uh, while no one else gets it before things. So, so how does this, how would we apply this to us? What is the timeless principle? What's the underlying truth that Paul's getting across here? Okay, yes, that there ought to be unity amongst us, that we ought to be like, that, that this represents our oneness together. And so when we work, when, when we come together and we share this meal, but we are, there's division amongst us, there's something that's wrong with us. So what would it mean for us then? What are some specific re- reasons why we might need to examine ourselves before we take communion? What things do I need? Do I, I don't have to ask, am I eating too much of this while someone else isn't? What things might I need to ask if the timeless truth is make sure that there is unity amongst you while you are doing this? Do I have a quarrel or grudge? Okay. Is there someone in this room when we're taking communion and that person and I are at odds with each other and I'm holding a grudge against them and I hate that person because of what they did to me? If I'm doing that and we're both taking this together, we're going against what communion is supposed to be. Okay. So that's one. What, what may be another way that this could happen? Pride. Okay. Pride. Okay. Specifically, and this would even fit with the Corinthian context, which is like thinking I'm better than other people. And we might not believe in like the classism that they did back then, but we still have kind of our own strata of who's more important and who's cooler and those kinds of things. So um, refusing to associate with one brother or sister in Christ while I'm doing these things or with certain kinds of people. Okay. Well, Okay. Okay. Yeah, there is this idea of he's, you know, he says there, I, I gave you what Jesus passed on to me, that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, those kinds of things. So we know that that is there and that is true, right? Okay. 
Anything else? Okay, this is good. This is like, this is how you, this is how you understand and apply an epistle. You, you look at the text, you look at the stuff around it and go, oh, when he says examine himself, he's talking about something specific in, in context. And then we ask what's different and what's the same. And then we jump up here and then move down, okay? Now, let me just say, it's not always like a puzzle you gotta unlock, right? Uh, Paul says, flee sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6. We don't gotta go, I wonder what that means for me and what that means for it, right? It's like, no, he, you know what he means? He means flee sexual immorality, right? Now, it may work different. For them, it means avoid prostitution. And for us, it may mean avoid pornography, right? But, um, but, but the, the idea, there's not some big puzzle that we got to unlock to try and figure that out and study through those things. Oftentimes, what the epistles are telling us are pretty straightforward. There's one more on here that I want you to, if you get a chance to do it, and, and it's fairly simple. Look at these three sections of Philippians, 1, 27 through 30, 2, 1 through 4, and 2, 5 through 11, and then ask this question. We're not doing this tonight. This is for you to do later. Ask this question, how are these three things related? Like what words keep coming up in these three texts, in these three little passages? What themes are, is, is running through them? And then how would I apply that today? And let me tell you, don't look for a secret hidden meaning. It's straightforward, just like reading a letter and see what it says and then work to uh, apply this into your own life. Okay, uh, I'm going to wrap up here. And, and then if you got questions or whatever, we can talk a little bit afterwards. Okay. Dear God, thank you for your word. Um, I pray once again, give us a desire to read this and give us a passion and an understanding of it so that we can know you more, Lord, and so that we can obey you. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.